0: These are the words of Solomon, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and these are the words that Solomon pins. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light Than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, That this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Two points on your outline this morning. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. Write this down. The wise man sees death coming and lives accordingly. But the fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. The wise man sees death coming and he lives accordingly. But the fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. Let me turn your attention back specifically to verses 12 through 14. Find them there in your Bible. Solomon says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. I'm going to talk about those this morning. What can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain or more profit, same word, in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than there is in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived the same event happened to all of them Well, the book of ecclesiastes is essentially a journal it's a a journal of solomon's experiences in life it's a journal in solomon's conclusions about life as he examines every square inch of life under the sun in search for ultimate purpose and ultimate satisfaction and that's what solomon is after here He is leaving no rock unturned. He's looking in every nook and in every cranny under the sun to try to find ultimate purpose and satisfaction. It should be noted that every human being is on a quest for ultimate purpose and satisfaction. Solomon's quest, Solomon's longing, is not confined to Solomon alone. Every single human being who has lived, is living, or will ever live is on a relentless search, a quest, a pursuit for ultimate purpose and significance. We're all searching for answers to life's fundamental questions. We've mentioned these four fundamental or foundational questions a couple of times throughout our study, but here they are again. Everyone asks, how did I get here? That's the question of origin. How did I get here? The second question is, who am I? That's the question of significance. Who in the world am I? Uh, The purpose of question is, what am I here for? What am I here for? And then the last question is the the question of destiny, and that's the question, where am I going? Where am I going? It's been said that the book of Genesis tells us how we got here, The book of Revelation tells us where we're going, and the book of Romans tells us how to get there. All right? Read Romans. Read Romans. But every human being is ultimately on a quest for purpose and fulfillment, asking these fundamental questions about life, and so Solomon began with the pursuit of wisdom. That was his first pursuit. That was the first rock that he turned over, uh, so to speak. He's looking He's looking for significance. He's looking for ultimate purpose in life. I know that I said early on uh, that meaning isn't the best word, but, but there is such a close relationship between purpose and meaning uh, that I don't think that we have to toss the baby out with the bathwater. When Solomon says, all is vanity or all is havel, I don't think. Meaningless, meaninglessness is the first gloss definition that we should give to havel, uh, but it certainly probably falls within a list of definitions suitable uh, or adequate definitions for the word havel. And so Solomon is—he's looking for purpose, he's looking for significance, he's looking for meaning, if you will. And his first, his first place of searching was in wisdom, and he observed. He examined, he scrutinized, he questioned, and he processed all that he learned. Solomon was brilliant. We said just a couple of weeks ago that it was Solomon who, when the Lord told him, you can ask for anything, Solomon requested what? He requested wisdom. Not wealth, not power, not fame. He requested wisdom. Not only did he request wisdom, but he requested wisdom so that he could govern God's people rightly. Wisdom. But at the end of the day, this searching for purpose, this searching for ultimate significance in meaning, left Solomon frustrated as he learned that the world was twisted or crooked and it could not be made straight. As Solomon diligently tried, he could not get the balance sheet of life to harmonize. Remember, he said, What is lacking can't be counted. And so for all the wisdom that he has, Solomon sees that there is crookedness, there is a twisted reality about life that that even my wisdom cannot straighten out. I mean, it's like taking a piece of aluminum and crumpling it and then trying to, to spread it back out again and get all the wrinkles and all the imperfections back out of it. You just can't do it. Neither does the balance sheet of life harmonize. Solomon is saying there there are things that just don't add up about life. There are things that, that, that are incongruent. There are inconsistencies. There are frustrations and failures. Things just don't add up at the end of the day. And so Solomon concluded his search for wisdom by saying, for in much wisdom there is much vexation. We said that word actually has the idea of frustration or anger. Solomon's saying, for in all my search of wisdom, I actually ended up in a place where I was deeply frustrated or incredibly angry. Why? Because the one who increases in knowledge also increases in sorrow. The more I know, the more I learn, the more I take in, the more I process, the more I consider... The more sorrowful I become. Well, having determined that wisdom was not the golden ticket, Solomon began to examine pleasure. That's where we were last week. He became an experiential hedonist. Hedonist is just another word for pleasure seeker, a person that finds ultimate significance in pleasure would be a hedonist. As Solomon pursued comedic performance, he pursued intoxicating potion. He pursued the acquisition of property, untold prosperity, unhindered promiscuity, and worldwide prestige and power. All these things Solomon had at his disposal, they were all within his reach or his grasp. Solomon's life was like a vacuum, pulling in every conceivable indulgence. Whatever his eyes desired, he told us, he did not keep from them. He withheld no pleasure that his heart hungered, longed for, or thirsted for. He had access to everything. And if he didn't have it readily at his disposal, he could acquire it without trouble. Yet when the dust settled... And Solomon awoke the next morning, so to speak, uh, to to survey the night before. He accounted his pursuit of pleasure as a liability instead of an asset. For, For all I had, for all I acquired, for all I amassed, for all I stored up, for as great as the bank account balance was, yet it all at the end of the day was accounted as a liability instead of an asset. That was his conclusion. Matter of fact, Solomon concludes his search for pleasure by saying, "All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained. It was all Havel, like a a, a wisp of wind, a little bit of vapor, a mist that quickly appears and then vanishes. Well, in verse 11, that's where we ended last week, Solomon turned to consider all that his hands had done. That's where we left off last week. Solomon's waking up, so to speak, the morning after uh, his, his night, it wasn't just a night, but his night of absolutely intoxicating pleasure, and he turns to look at everything. He turns to consider all that his hands had done. Well, We pick up back in verse 12 this morning, and Solomon again is considering something. Look at verse 12. Solomon turns now to consider wisdom and madness and folly. The phrase, so I turned to consider, can be understood as I considered things from a different perspective. Solomon is saying, I'm looking at things, or I turn to consider things from a different perspective. Solomon's going to consider his wisdom in light of the reality of his certain impending death. Solomon's grappling with things here. He's struggling with things here. There's tension in his heart and in his mind. He's saying, hey, I, I am wise. I'm immensely wise. I have greater wisdom than anyone in Jerusalem or anyone who has ever come before me. Yet at the end of the day, I hold in my other hand a certain reality that one day I'm going to die and be no more. That's the tension that Solomon is struggling with here in our text this morning. The question he wrestles with is this, what good is all my wisdom and all that that wisdom accomplishes if at the end of the day all that wisdom is going to be put in a box and buried just like I am? What good is it? good is it? Now, here's what you have to understand. We've talked about this multiple times along the way, and we'll continue to talk about this as we journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is speaking from an under-the-sun perspective. And so what Solomon is grappling with here in his heart and his mind, what he's frustrated with, what he, what he can't seem to, uh, to, to make harmonize all comes to us from a perspective of life that is under the sun. Solomon's not talking about uh, the wisdom of the Lord here. Solomon's not talking about having an eternal perspective uh, that the Christian ought to have here. That all comes later. It's coming, but it comes later. And so what Solomon does is he makes these statements about life under the sun, and he just lets them sit. He presents us with a problem, he presents us uh, with a conclusion that's frustrating, and then he doesn't just come and, and put a nice tidy bow on the box and make things pretty for us right away. He lets these strange realizations just sit and linger with us. And Sometimes that makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, that that for some of you, you might be saying, Pastor Eric, there are certainly more encouraging parts of Scripture that we could be studying. I mean, could you not come up with anything better for a sermon title this morning than newsflash, you're going to die? The reason those things set a bit uncomfortable with us is because we go to such great lengths to try to inoculate ourselves from life's realities. We entertain ourselves and we amuse ourselves and we do this or that. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in fun and entertainment so that we don't have to think about these realities. And when Solomon confronts us with these realities and he doesn't just tie a pretty bow on it right away, we don't really know what to do with that. We don't really have a great file for that because it's not the way that we're used to thinking And so I would tell you, as I ended our message last week, if the book of Ecclesiastes is leaving you a bit frustrated, if it's leaving you a bit discouraged, if it's leaving you a bit disheartened, if there's kind of a grittiness or a lasting greasiness that at the end of each of these messages you kind of walk away with, let me just submit to you that the book of Ecclesiastes is doing exactly what it was intended to do. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is intended... To get your eyes off of the things of this world and onto the things above. Again, that doesn't come to us, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or eleven, but chapter twelve. But I would be remiss as a pastor and a shepherd if along the way I did not infuse the reality. That we are to fix our eyes on things above, not on things of earth. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Okay? But Solomon is writing from an under the sun perspective here. And he's struggling. He's struggling. Well, look back at your Bible there, verse 12. The words wisdom, madness, and folly. Uh, these words should sound familiar to us we've heard them before Solomon the preacher has discussed these uh, issues or topics back in chapter one as a matter of fact uh, uh, Solomon said this back in chapter 1 verse 17 he said I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly I applied my heart I gave myself to the diligent study of wisdom and madness and folly Uh, Tommy Nelson well-known pastor he notes this that a good preacher makes points that are bluntly stated Clearly explained and endlessly repeated. You know, as I think about my own life, as I think about my own growth as a Christian, the pastors who have had the most indelible impact on my life are those pastors who say the same things over and over and over and over again. Think about John Piper, for instance. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. That has been the one drumbeat that he has for the whole duration of his ministry just continued to pound. I think about um, other pastors uh, that, that have helped me to see the gospel from every facet conceivable the gospel in parenting the gospel in work the gospel uh, in uh, shepherding a child's heart the gospel in in eternity but have helped me focus on a central item those men have had the most indelible impact on my life that's what Solomon's doing here he's coming back to something that he's already said before and he's unapologetic about it Solomon doesn't say, I know I've already said this before. Solomon doesn't say, I know I've already brought these topics up before, uh, but just bear with me for a second here. No, Solomon turns and he considers these same topics again. Solomon's picking up these subjects for further discussion. He has in one hand wisdom. Okay, Solomon's holding in one hand wisdom, and he's holding in the other hand Mad folly. And he's going to compare and to contrast them. He's going to try to make sense of them so far as he can as it pertains to life under the sun. Now, for clarification's sake, madness and folly go together. Okay, that's why I said Solomon in one hand is considering wisdom, he's considering in the other hand. Uh, your Bible probably presents it as two different topics, madness and folly. But I would submit to you that Solomon is not talking about three different subjects, but only two. Madness and folly are what we refer to as a hendiadys. Uh, this is a figure of speech where we take two nouns and we put and in the middle of them, but those two nouns are speaking about the same thing. And so Solomon is talking about wisdom, and he's considering that in one hand, and in the other hand, he's considering not madness and folly, but he's considering mad folly. Mad folly. That's what Solomon is doing here. He's examining or comparing the difference between the right way to live and the wrong way to live. Wisdom, the right way to live, the wrong way to live, mad folly. And he's trying to make sure that he leaves no stone unturned, no angle unconsidered in his search for purpose and significance under the sun. And so he's going to deal with these issues. He's going to deal with these issues. Now, what is his conclusion? What conclusion does Solomon come to as he holds in one hand wisdom and in the other hand mad folly? Well, he says, what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Solomon is convinced that his pursuit of significance has been comprehensive and that the use of his wisdom in pursuit of it has been thorough. Okay? Track with me here for a second. What Solomon is saying is, what can anyone who comes after me do That hasn't already been done. Or what can anyone who comes after me accomplish that has not already been accomplished? In other words, there is no person now or on deck who is smarter than I am, who has experienced as much pleasure as I have, who has constructed the great works that I have, or who has more money than I have, who has more wives than I have had, or who has a greater reputation than I have. Solomon wants us to know that his conclusion as it pertains to intellectual pursuits, hedonism and materialism, the accumulation of stuff, it's as good as it gets. You can't do any better. Nobody coming down the pike later, no one on deck is going to be able to do it better than I have. With greater wisdom, with greater wealth, to have all that I have had, and so whatever my conclusion is at the end of the day, is the conclusion that will stand. That's what Solomon is saying here. No one's going to come along after, after I'm gone and going to come up with a different conclusion. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is the only standing, lasting conclusion for all life under the sun, even after I'm dead and gone. No one can prove me wrong. And I know that because I'm wiser than any other man. Because I had the fortune to acquire everything that that there is out there. I have tasted and seen all that there is. I left nothing on the table, but experienced and pursued it all. And I can tell you, this is as good as gold. You can take it to the bank. It's vanity. That's the conclusion. And that conclusion will stand. If Solomon can't find purpose and significance, then no one else stands a chance. Solomon stands as a microcosm of humanity. He wants us to know that he is the test case, and that no one will arrive at a conclusion that he has not already brought to bear. If the king cannot find purpose, if the king cannot find fulfillment, if the king cannot find joy, if the king cannot find satisfaction, even meaningfulness, then no one can. Look at verse 13. Solomon writes this. He says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. You see, as Solomon compares wisdom and mad folly, he tells us what he discovered. And look back at your Bible there. Here is his conclusion. He says, there is more gain. Some of your translations may say there is more profit. It's the same word. There is more gain or profit in wisdom than there is in folly, just as there is more gain in light than there is in darkness. Now, for the optimists among us this morning, just raise your hand just so I know who you are, if you're an optimist. Okay, there's five of you. Uh, For the optimists among us this morning, I get the hand over there, I see you. I think it's a little one's hand. It is. It is. We have a little optimist over back there in the back, and uh, I'm just praising the Lord that she's listening. And uh, the fact that you adults would listen to me is one thing. The fact that one of the kiddos would listen to me, that just cheers my heart. There's more gain or more profit in wisdom than there is in folly. But for the optimist among us here, you may note that this is the first positive note that Solomon has played in the entire book of Ecclesiastes at this point, to this point. This is the first positive statement that Solomon has made. There is more profit, there's more gain in wisdom than there is in folly. While Solomon's wisdom couldn't straighten out what was crooked or count what was lacking, he does affirm that wisdom is better than folly. The fact that wisdom is better than folly is just as clear as the fact is light is better than darkness. Matter of fact, light exposes the darkness. Light illuminates the darkness. What what Solomon is saying here, if I can just put the cookies on the bottom shelf here, uh, Solomon is saying it's good to be wise. It's good to be wise. Because wisdom keeps you from making foolish decisions. It's good to be wise. It's good to know the distinction between right or wrong. Now again, Solomon's not importing God talk into this text. He's just speaking about life and wisdom under the sun. Even still, Solomon says it's good to be wise. It's good to be wise. Wisdom will keep you from making many foolish mistakes. It's good to be able to discern or to be able to see the distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Look at verse 14. Solomon continues. He says, The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. You see, the value of wisdom isn't simply that it gives light, but that it enables us to see. It gives vision, not just illumination. To say that a person has eyes in their head means that that person can actually see what they're doing and where they're going. The implication is that wise people have a clear head and they walk about the world as a well lit room. The wise person has useful perception, and that useful perception is used to navigate life. By contrast, the fool does not have eyes and so walks in darkness. This darkness is not just around him, but inside of him, because he has no eyes with which to see. You see, a foolish person walks blindly in darkness and is prone to hurt themselves and others. Foolish people are so prone to hurt themselves and others. Sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's unintentional. I mean, you can know what you're doing, and you can live intentionally, even in darkness, but oftentimes darkness makes cumbersome normal activities. And so the person who lives in darkness ends up hurting themselves and hurting others. Solomon's saying here, you live a safer life if you live wisely. Wisdom is the ability to use the best means at the best time to accomplish the best ends. It's wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is the practical use of knowledge. So it's not just that a person has a a head that's just jam-packed full of knowledge. Wisdom is being able to take that knowledge and to apply it, to apply it in a helpful way. Wisdom is the practical use, the fruitful use of knowledge. And we find this same perspective here that, that wisdom is greater, or, or has more profit than folly. We find this same perspective in many of Solomon's Proverbs. As a matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, as Solomon writes these words. He says, A wise son makes glad a father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. You see the distinction there between wisdom and foolishness. The wise makes glad, the fool brings sorrow. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8: The wise of heart will receive commandments, but the babbling fool will come to ruin. Wisdom receives commandments, but the fool rejects it. The fool rejects it. But Solomon, the thinker, here, he's got a, a bit of the philosopher's mind in him here. And he's not content with pithy statements. And by saying he's not content with pithy statements, I'm not saying that Proverbs chapter 10 verse 1 or Proverbs chapter 10 verse 8 are just pithy statements. But Solomon, of all men, certainly is not content with pithy statements. He wrestles with what he sees and experiences. Do we wrestle with what we see and experience? I would suspect that more times than not we wrestle to get it to go away so that we don't have to think critically about the inconsistencies and the incongruencies and the crookedness of life in a Genesis 3 fallen world verse 14 is one of those tensions of heart that we see oftentimes in Ecclesiastes while Solomon affirms the superiority of wisdom over mad folly he cannot help but be conflicted as he considers look at this phrase in your Bible that the same event happens to all of them. Solomon is conflicted. He's confounded about this statement or this phrase here, that there's profit or there's advantage or there's greater gain in wisdom than there is in mad folly, but he is frustrated as he considers that yet the same event happens to all of them. What is Solomon saying here? What does Solomon mean? Well, there's a couple different ways that we might understand this short phrase here. The same event happens to both of them. Uh, The word event, which is how it's translated in the English Standard Version, which is what I use here, may be translated fate in your Bible. The same event happens to all of them, or maybe your translation says the same fate happens to all of them. Uh, The Hebrew word here carries the idea of something that happens, a fortune or a destiny. And so it's possible this simply means that the wise man and the fool both experience the same ups and downs of life. I mean, both of us, the sun rises on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And so the wise and the fool, they, they are subject to the same ups and downs of life, the same, the same billows, the same sea billows, the same ebbs and flows, the same trials and tragedies of life. In other words, whether we live by wisdom or by mad folly, we all get caught up in the same events, including the same catastrophes and calamities. Just kind of the, the playing field is level. It's possible that that's what Solomon is saying. I don't think that's what Solomon is saying when he speaks this phrase here, the same event happens to them all. I think that Solomon, when he says the same event or the same fate happens to them all here, I think Solomon is highlighting death. When all is said and done, the same destiny befalls both the wise man and the fool. Both the wise man and the fool live. They both die, they're both buried, and in the end, they're both forgotten. Let me just take you back to chapter 1, verse 11. I mean, friends, I, I know it's uncomfortable and we'd rather think about a thousand other things, but the reality is there's a day coming soon. There's a day coming soon that you will breathe life's final breath. And they will make you look as pretty as they can for a short period of time and people will come to mourn your death and I will stand at your graveside or another preacher or minister of the word will stand at your graveside along with your closest family and friends and we'll speak some kind words about you and we'll try uh, endeavor to turn uh, all of our eyes upon Jesus but the reality is is that as soon as everyone goes back to their car they're gonna put dirt over the hole they put you in. And it's not going to be long before grass grows over that dirt. And the only remembrance of you is going to be a piece of stone that sticks out of the ground if anyone ever even comes to visit you. You'll be forgotten. Remember, I said a few weeks ago, you know, raise your hand if you can remember the names of your grandparents. How about your great-grandparents? How about your great-great-grandparents? After that, everything gets fuzzy at best. If you can remember at all, you'll be forgotten. The wisest among us will be forgotten. The richest among us will be forgotten. The most prosperous. Those uh, who, who had the greatest successes in life, you'll be forgotten. Even if they make a documentary about you, it won't be long before it gets pushed down to the bottom of the list and nobody watches it. It's the reality of life. And yes, it's uncomfortable. And Solomon just lets it sit there. Uncomfortable. While Solomon concedes that wisdom has certain advantages over ignorance, he acknowledges that the reality of wisdom, as great as it is, does not provide or bring any lasting gain or profit there's profit in the here and now as we're living life under the sun yes wisdom is better than mad folly but in the end wisdom wisdom will not bring any lasting gain or profit death will take wisdom from the wisest number two write this down you won't be prepared to live unless you're first prepared to die You won't be prepared to live unless you're first prepared to die. This is verses 15 through 17. Instead of reading the entire text here, we'll just kind of take it uh, in stride here as we work through it. You won't be prepared to live unless you're first prepared to die. While the wise man and the fool may be very different in their life and are indistinguishable uh, in many ways, they are certainly indistinguishable in their death. Both will die the same death. Death is one of the most obvious facts of life. Matter of fact, the certainty of the topic of death is one that, that Solomon wrote about oftentimes. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 12. Solomon brings up this reality of death. You see, friends, no matter how smart you've been in this life, you are going to die. No matter how moral you have been, you are going to die. And our foolish friends will die along with us. And Solomon sees this reality. And so he writes Look there in your Bible, verse 15. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, This is also vanity. I mean, here is Solomon's question here. You ready for it? This is his question What is the point of excess wisdom if it does not result in a surplus of profit? What's the point? What's the point? Another way to say that is this, if every card in our hand will one day be trumped in the end, why does it matter how we play? Why does it matter? If in the end, death makes fools of us all, then why bother with the whole wisdom in a prize at all? Solomon's conundrum is this, if death is the great equalizer, and if it makes no distinctions, then why even bother to be wise? Why bother? Why not act the fool if we all end up in the same place anyway, if we all end up in the same grave anyway? You see, not only, this is what Solomon's realizing here, is that not only, uh, not, not only uh, can pleasure uh, not resolve this unhappy business that, that God has uh, placed on all men under the sun, but neither can wisdom. Wisdom can't take away or release us from this unhappy business of living life under the sun and it certainly can't solve the ultimate problem of death look at verse 16 Solomon continues here he says for as the wise is as the fool there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how does the wise die, just like the fool you see friends the intellectuals real hope here is that he or she will achieve lasting fame and be long remembered for their great contributions during this life. We hope that we will be long remembered way after we're dead and gone. But Solomon pronounces this to be an illusion. Future generations will no more remember the scholar than they will the beggar on the street. They won't remember you. In fact, a good case can actually be made for the fact that fools are sometimes remembered longer than the wise. Sooner or later, we all have to come to the shocking realization that one day we are going to die. One day our heart is going to beat a last time, our lungs will exhale a final time, and that will be the end of my days on earth. So Solomon struggled with the realities of death that has the ability to erase every remembrance of his existence. And sometimes people try to overcome this problem by earthly achievement, but in the end, death still wins. The filmmaker Woody Allen once acknowledged this when he said, I don't want to achieve immorality through my work, I want to achieve it by not dying. We don't like to think much about death. There's two primary tactics that we employ to inoculate ourselves against this sober reality of death. They are diversion and distraction. That's what we use. We use diversion and we use distraction to try to console ourselves against life's miseries and confusions. We submerge ourselves beneath the abundance of of trivia in our fully wired worlds. I mean, we can't go, and I am in the we here, we can't go seconds if not minutes without being connected in our social circles. we're, We're wired everywhere. We're completely digitized. We live in a world of social media. We have limitless sources of entertainment. And so what do we do? We use all those things as diversion and distraction. The reality is that if death does not inform the way that we live, death is something that we are pretending doesn't exist. Let me rewind that statement. If death does not inform the way you live, then you are pretending as if death does not exist. None of us are permanent, and nothing we do is permanent. Thomas Adams, who has been called the Shakespeare of the Puritans, once said this. He said, all are like actors on a stage. Some have one part, some have another. But death is busy amongst us all. Here drops one of the players We bury him with sorrow, and on to the next scene. Then falls another one, yea, all, one after another, till death be left upon the stage. Death is that damp which puts out all the dim lights of vanity. It's the reality. And for some of us, you're probably sitting there saying, can we we get on to point number three here? Can we can we move on from this? You'll have the rest of the day to move on with this, if you wish. But sometimes it's good just to sit and settle in reality, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, "Death serves all alike; as he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. He doesn't care about the appearance of the proud palace." He doesn't care about how numerous those are who are in your attendance or in your midst. He doesn't care how majestic your countenance is. He pulls the king off his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God. There's a preacher of the old school, and I'll land the plane here. There's a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular though the world is his parish and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, he calls upon the rich, he preaches the people of every religion and to those of no religion. And his subject, the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments None are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name, death. The name of that preacher is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every single one of you will be his sermon. It's the reality of life. The reality of life. And so, what's Solomon's response to all this? Look at verse 17. He says this. He says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon stands here as the classic picture of man. He's a living illustration revealing what man will be at the peak of their wisdom, at the pinnacle of their wisdom. What man will be at the pinnacle of their pleasure with untold wealth and uncontested power, yet without God? What's the conclusion? I hated life. I hated life. Notice carefully here that Solomon doesn't say, so I hate life, but rather I hated life. This is not his final conclusion. Again, it's going to take some chapters before we get there this certainly was Solomon's attitude when his pursuit of wisdom revealed itself to be broken, just like the broken cisterns that hold no water. And so Solomon here became despairing even of life. And Solomon's not alone. Many thinkers have come to the same conclusion. The philosopher Voltaire, uh, writing to a close friend, once wrote these words. He said, I hate life, and yet I'm afraid to die. We read C.S. Lewis, uh, but what do you know about C.S. Lewis's early life? What do you know about C.S. Lewis' younger years? When he was an atheist, Lewis penned these words, Come, let us curse our master ere we die. For all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good is dead. Let us curse God most high. You don't find that in your Christianity. This is the reality of life under the sun, friends. Solomon hated life because of the certainty and the reality of death and the absurdity of losing everything that he, has, that he had accumulated as a result. But unfortunately, the reality of death plagues some Christians as well. Uh, listen here, let me, let, me, let me get your attention. If you're writing, stop and humor me for just a moment here. Many Christians dread the thought of leaving this world. Why? Because so many of us have stored up treasures on earth, instead of treasures in heaven. And each day brings us closer to death. And so if your treasures are on earth, that means that each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. Just ponder that this afternoon. Maybe that's a good takeaway for you. Well, we need to have an above the sun and above the grave uh, perspective here. The only way out of this hatred of life is to fix our eyes above the sun and beyond the grave. In Colossians chapter 3, actually why don't you do this, why don't you close your Bible here. I got about a minute and a half or two minutes and just would love your full attention here. Let me, let me try to do the best I can to tie a bow on this that, that leaves us with something encouraging here this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It's probably a familiar text to uh, most of us, if not all of us. Paul says this. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, friends, because Jesus, our Redeemer, Savior, is alive, the grave is not the ultimate reality. It's not the ultimate end for anyone who is wise enough to trust Jesus Christ. It's not the end. It's not the ultimate reality. Solomon hated life from this under-the-sun perspective because he saw death as an eraser that not only ended life, but wiped out any remembrance of him friends we have been called to live for more than we can touch taste see and smell we've been called to live in light of eternity we've been called to live in light of another world we've been called to live in light of another king we've been called to live in light of another prize and for those who set their minds on things above and not the things on earth there is life and wisdom beyond the grave Friends, here's the reality. Your life may, even Christian, your life may well be forgotten here on this earth. But Colossians 3.3 tells us that for those who have trusted Jesus Christ savingly, their lives are hidden with Christ in God. And it's interesting to note that the Greek word translated uh, hidden here is krupto. It's where we get our English word Encryption. It's a helpful way to think about the spiritual implications of Colossians 3.3. You see, if you know Christ, your life is encrypted with Christ in God. So God preserves in his Son everything that is essential to who you are. You may be forgotten on this world, but you are remembered and hidden and and encrypted in, uh, in God. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth and reality. Let me leave you with this, friends. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin is the cause and Christ is the cure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What, what challenging realities that are here. Uh, Lord, thank you that Solomon presents us with the truth of life uh, and he does not quickly resolve them for us. And that's uncomfortable for us, but that's okay. I pray that you would cause us to think, to dwell, to ponder, to reflect, and to consider the reality of our own death and that we would live wisely in the remaining days that you have given us, wisely enough to repent of our sin and to trust in Jesus Christ alone, that he would become our sin bearer, that he would become the curse for us by dying on that crooked, awful, ruthless, vile tree. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.